Well, I am still traveling. I'm back in the United States, but I happen to be out in Arizona, a little town called Prescott. I'm here with my family visiting my mother-in-law. And from here, we actually go to Las Vegas. We'll be visiting my father-in-law. So I'm still traveling. You know, my wife is going to be recording uh, these songs that she's been working on I don't know, six months or a year. And she's recording, I guess, the final cuts of these songs. She wrote all the songs herself and she's singing the songs. The guy who did the music was a fan of mine who had reached out to me some time ago just to let me know that he, uh, you know, really appreciated the podcast and been following me. And but he was a musician and he ended up uh, talking to my wife and they've been collaborating on these songs. So uh, I think they've done a very good job on the music and I'm looking forward uh, to sharing that with my audience. Everything is going to be uploaded, uh, you know, on iTunes uh, and uh, all the, you know, what is it? uh, um, You know, the music channels, I I forget the name of them, uh, uh, where everybody puts up their music. But when, when, when all that stuff is ready, I'll let everybody know. Uh, and um, you guys could uh, could could uh, could give it a listen, and I'm sure you'll 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 enjoy it. Anyway, I will be back though in Connecticut, I think, for the next podcast, and then I'll be back in Puerto Rico uh, August 10th, and I'll be able to be in 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 my studio and probably do the podcasts in a more regular uh, format. I, it's been hard to you know get some some time to do them on the road. Anyway, the big topic that I want to discuss today is what happened on Wednesday with the Fed, because the Federal Reserve announced its decision on interest rates. And after a pause, remember the last time the Fed met, they didn't do anything. They left interest rates alone. And at that time, I thought that that was it that the Fed paused because they were worried about the damage that had been done by the rate hikes and that they didn't want to hike anymore, but they didn't want to come right out and say that. They still wanted to, you know, kind of fake as if they were going to keep hiking, but they came up with an excuse to pause. And I thought they may prolong that. Well, that was wrong because the Fed did in fact raise rates again, another 25 basis points, We're now at five and a quarter to five and a half. And I think one of the reasons that the Fed was able to slip in another rate hike was because of the huge rise in the market. Now, I think one of the reasons the market was so strong is because a lot of people jumped to the same conclusion as me, that the Fed was kind of done. And so the market rallied. It was like a relief rally that the rate hikes might be over. But I think that big rally in the market created a sense of comfort for the Fed that, yeah, you know, we could slip in another rate hike. And in fact, going into the decision, the odds of a rate hike were near 100 percent. So, of course, by then I was pretty much of the view that we were going to get a hike. I no longer believed that the Fed was done because one thing I've learned over the years is the Fed never wants to surprise the market. 
So if the market is certain the Fed's going to hike, well, the Fed hikes. The Fed doesn't want to surprise the market, disappoint the market, give the market a reason to be concerned. After all, if the Fed didn't hike, the markets might have thought, why not? Why didn't they hike? What's the problem? What, you know, what, you know, what are they worried about that we don't know about? So when the markets are kind of blessing the rate hike, because everybody believes the Fed is going to hike and then, you know, the markets are going up anyway. Uh, there's no reason for the Fed not to hike uh, because it can kind of get it in. But the question is, what's going to happen next? Because Powell is still indicating that there's one more hike. But that's really it. And um, whether or not we go from five and a quarter, five and a half to five and a half, five and three quarters, I don't think that really makes much of a difference. But it's pretty clear from what Powell said, not only in the prepared remarks, but in the you know press conference that followed, that this is pretty much it. <clears throat> because Powell mentioned in that Q&A that they don't expect any rate cuts this year. Well, I mean, the year is half over, right? I mean, we're, you know, next week we're starting August. And so the fact that we're not going to get any cuts this year shouldn't surprise anyone. But what Powell did indicate is that the members of the FOMC believe that the rate cuts are going to start next year in 2024. So I think that's pretty dovish to let that cat out of the bag, that we're going to start cutting rates in 2024. And, you know, it doesn't even make any sense for the Fed to even suggest that rate cuts could come as early as next year when the Fed also removed from their forecast a mild recession. The last time the Fed met, they had a recession in their forecast, which is something they never do. Now, they, they kind of clarified it by forecasting a mild recession, but they still forecast a recession. They've now changed their mind. According to Powell, based on the economic data that has come out since that forecast, the economy now looks strong enough that the Fed's base case is now a soft landing where the economy avoids recession. We don't even have a recession. And we don't even have any kind of big pickup in unemployment. Well, if that is really the case, if the Fed thinks there's no uh, recession anywhere in sight, and according to Powell, we're still a long way from reaching the 2% inflation goal. He said many times that inflation is still too high. It's a threat. It is you know, eroding purchasing power. It is hurting uh, the middle class. It's hurting the poor. We're a long way from victory. Given that, if we're a long way from achieving the inflation goal and the economy is now so strong that they're not even worried about a recession, why would they talk about rate cuts as early as next year? Also, I think the most significant announcement that came out of the meeting is that Powell admitted that the Fed is not going to wait for 2% inflation before it starts cutting rates. Because Powell said, we don't believe we're going to get back to 2% inflation until sometime in 2025. But he said the Fed is forecasting the first rate cuts to happen in 2024. Well, why cut rates if you're still not at your 2% goal? Well, what Powell tried to say 
is that we don't have to wait for 2%. We will just assume that if we've made enough progress and we're moving in that direction, well, we'll just start cutting rates anyway. And we'll just assume that the prior rate hikes have got us on a glide path so that we can still get down to 2%, even if we start cutting rates, which makes no sense. In In fact, Powell admitted that the Fed is still um, restrictive in its policy, but that by next year, it may, it may not only move to neutral, but move to accommodative. He said we may lower interest rates to below neutral next year. How are they going to do that? We're not even close to the inflation goal. Yes, if you look at the headline CPI, we got down to 3%. But it's not going to stay there. Oil prices dropped almost 50% between, I think, the summer of uh, 2021 and about three months ago. It was about a 50% drop in oil prices. That was really what brought headline CPI down from um, 9% to 3%. Well, over the last three months or so, oil prices are up 25%. We closed the fifth consecutive positive week for oil. We closed above $80 a barrel. Gasoline prices now in the country are at the highest they've been all year. We're seeing other commodities that have already turned. The dollar index is weakening. It's bounced, you know, it's back up to about 101, but the dollar is in a decisive downtrend. Everything that you're looking at, all these forward indicators suggest that inflation is going to get worse, not better that the days of falling inflation are behind us and we're now about to embark on higher inflation. So with that in mind, how is it that Powell can be talking about cutting rates as early as next year? Not only not raising rates, but cutting them. In fact, Powell said, there's no way we're going to keep raising rates until inflation is down to 2%. He said, we would way overshoot if we did that. We have to start cutting rates even before we get to 2%, uh, supposedly to prevent inflation from getting too low, which, of course, is never going to happen. I think that there is another reason why Powell wants to tell the markets that rate cuts are coming, that don't pay any attention to the hikes today. We want you to think about the cuts that are coming tomorrow. And I'm going to talk about the real reason that I think Powell is signaling these rate cuts uh, after this commercial break. So stick around. We'll be right back. All right. So I'm talking about why the Fed is trying to let the markets know that these high interest rates are not here to stay. That before long, by next year, the Fed's going to be cutting rates and moving back to a stimulative monetary policy. And I think that is the main reason that you've seen the strength in the stock market, because investors are looking forward to a new round of stimulus where we have a uh, Fed funds rate that is low uh, and potentially a return to quantitative easing. And I think the reason for that is because the Fed understands the problem of keeping interest rates where they are for any extended period of time. But the reality is, in order to get inflation down to 2%, not only 
is the Fed going to have to keep interest rates where they are for many, many years? It's actually going to have to provide additional hikes beyond the 25 basis points that it is forecasting, maybe for the September meeting or another meeting later this year. Because what the Fed has already done is inadequate for the job. Because if inflation really bottoms out at around 3% headline, and if the core really bottoms out at around four and a half, five percent and the Fed's already up at five and a quarter, five and a half. Clearly, it needs much bigger rate hikes to get the job done, especially if the headline number three percent by the end of the year is back up to five percent or higher. It means that all of this rate hikes and inflation continues to you know, be well north of 2%, which means there's a lot more that has to come, but the markets will not be able to bear it. For example, the last time we had a Fed funds rate where it is right now was 22, 23 years ago. You got to go back to the year 2000 to find a, a Fed funds rate at this level. But to put this in perspective, and I'm just going to look at the, the federal government, because everybody's got more debt now than we had in 2000. It's not just the government. Thanks to these low interest rates, the corporate sector, households, everybody has a lot more debt than they had in 2000. But I looked up the national debt in the year 2000, and it was $5.6 trillion. Today, it's $32.7 trillion. That is a huge difference. Now, what I want to do for comparison is look at what it would cost the government to finance the $5.6 trillion debt at interest rates of five and a quarter, because that is the prevailing market rate. Now, the government doesn't have to finance the entire debt at the market rate because some of that debt uh, is longer term and has been locked up. But it's always important to try to assume what it would cost to pay the current debt at current rates, especially now given how short the maturities are of the national debt, because every year, you know, maybe a third of the national debt comes due. And so all of that debt, which is financed at 10, 25 basis points, matures, and it has to be rolled over at 500 basis points. You know, the only way they can get it down to 400 basis points is if they borrow, you know, 10-year treasury, something like that. But they, they're trying to keep the maturity short. So it's very important to look at what it would cost to finance the national debt at the current rate of interest. So back in the year 2000, at five and a quarter percent, given the size of the national debt, it would have cost the U.S. government 300 billion a year to pay the interest on the debt. Now, to put that number in perspective, the defense budget in 2000 was 400 billion. So, interest on the debt at the market rate would have been about 75% of what the government spent on national defense. Now, compare that to today, where we have a $32.7 trillion national debt. If the government had to pay a market rate of interest on that debt, that's $1.8 trillion a year in interest. 
That is an enormous number. The amount of money spent on defense in 2023, the entire defense budget is $840 billion. So it's more than double what it was in um, 2000, but interest on the debt is about six times what it was in 2000. So today it would cost more than twice as much as we pay for defense to finance the national debt at the current rate of interest. And the problem is that over the next, let's say two, three, four years, the national debt is gonna explode from 32.7 trillion to closer to 40 trillion. <laughs> so it's gonna be a much bigger number because over those years, more and more of that low yielding debt is going to mature and have to be refinanced at the market rate, which is currently five and a quarter, five and a half, but which could be quite a bit higher than that. Now, this is impossible. There is no way the government can pay 1.8 trillion a year in interest, let alone two or three trillion, which is what it would pay if the Fed left interest rates at this level for a long enough period of time. So it's got to tell the markets that rates are coming down. It's got to give the markets that false sense of confidence not to have to worry that the, today's high interest rates are here to stay. Well, they are here to stay. In fact, they're going to get even higher because inflation is not going away. The Fed is still pretending that what it's done is enough to bring inflation back down to 2% to the, to the extent that they can already start cutting rates next year. Even though inflation is nowhere near 2%, the Fed is telling the markets, don't worry, we're cutting rates next year. Now, another reason that this is important is mortgages, the housing market. Right now, the 30-year fixed rate mortgage is 6.8% is where they averaged, I think, at the end of the week. Just a little bit under 7%. But if you look at what's happening in the bond market, the bond market is getting clobbered right now. The bond market, almost all the maturities now are back above uh, 4% on, on the shorter end. But the bond market, to me, if you look at that chart, uh, the bonds look like they're about to get hit. And I think we're going to see an 8% uh, fixed rate mortgage by the end of this year, which isn't that big a move from 6.8, 8%. You know, by the way, we finally broke a winning streak. We had a 13-day winning streak in the Dow. The last time we had a 13-day winning streak on the Dow was 1987. Now, that year didn't end very well because we had the stock market crash in October. We The 14th day was a down day for the Dow. So we didn't hit a 14th day in a row. That would have been a record which got went back, you know, 100 years or so, or I forget how long it would have been. Uh, but, you know, in 1987, the market, the stock market was rising against the backdrop of very bad economic news, rising interest rates, rising trade deficits, rising budget deficits. Same thing we have now. I mean, the markets ignore all these bad news until all of a sudden they can't ignore it anymore. And I think that's what's going to happen because the bond market is really getting clobbered. But the point I'm trying to make here about real estate, if real estate or mortgage rates get to 8%, the last time uh, mortgages were at 8% was also in the year 2000. So the last time we had a Fed funds rate where it is today 
we had 8% mortgages. And so I think that we're going to get 8% mortgages again this year. Now, here is the big problem. Because since 2000, household income in nominal terms, right? I'm not, this is not adjusted for inflation. This is just actual household incomes. Adjusted for inflation, the number is much smaller. In fact, if you adjust it for the actual inflation, household income is down uh, since 2000. I mean, using the CPI, it's up slightly, but the CPI is, you know, 50% of the actual rate of inflation. So if you use a real rate of inflation, household income has been eviscerated in the last 23 years. But nominally, household income is up by 70% in the last 23 years. The problem is the medium home price is up by more than 150% over the same time period. So housing prices have gone up more than twice as much as incomes. Now, until recently, the only thing that made those high home prices affordable was the low mortgage rates. People got mortgage rates in the threes. That's how they could afford to pay twice as much for a home, right, even though they didn't have the income. Well, if mortgage rates go all the way back up to where they were in the year 2000, how are people going to afford to buy these houses when they don't have the income? when home prices have gone up so much more than incomes. And in fact, we got the uh, personal income and, and spending numbers that came out on Friday, I believe. We got those numbers. And the numbers, let me look for them here. I have them uh, on, my, on my computer. So this is the, the June numbers. And income was up a little bit less than expected, up 0.3%. But spending was up more than expected at up 0.5. I mean, just slightly more. But that brought the savings rate down to 4.1%. This is the lowest savings rate of the year. And where do people get their money for a down payment on a house, right? Well, they get it from their savings. But the savings are being depleted. And I expect the savings rate to move even lower over time as people are forced to dip into that shallow pool in order to make ends meet because prices continue to rise, you know, despite the, the Fed trying to claim that the inflation battle is, is being won, is clearly being lost. And the point is, though, if Americans have, you know, low savings, how are they going to get a down payment on a home when homes are so much more expensive than they were in 2000, when people had more savings to make those down payments, and the prices are so much higher. So real estate prices are going to have to implode unless the Fed can start cutting rates. That's the only thing that can really save the market is going to be rate cuts. And so I think the Fed is trying to telegraph that. Same thing with uh, the, the commercial real estate market, the junk bond market. There are all sorts of notes, debt instruments that were taken out when rates were really low, that are going to be maturing next year, the year after that. And the Fed has to hold out some hope, right? Let the markets believe that there's going to be some relief coming, like the cavalry is coming to the rescue and rates are going to be able to come down. But why? How could that possibly be when inflation is still as high as it is? There is no justification for lower interest rates. 
yet Powell wants to pretend that we are going to be returning to a low interest rate environment. Well, how is that possible? Because we're not going to return to a low inflation environment. And if we're not going to return to a low inflation environment, we're not going to return to a low interest rate environment. In fact, last week, we got uh, the news that the Teamsters had reached an agreement with UPS for substantial wage hikes over the next five years. I'm not sure the full time. I didn't see the exact number for them. But I saw the part-time workers, part-time drivers for UPS, and they're basically getting a 10% raise per year. It was nine point something, but rounds it up to 10%. 10% per year for the next five years, 10% increases. What does that tell you? I mean, it's not that these wage hikes are going to cause the inflation. The point is the inflation has resulted in these wage hikes. Again, you know, during the Q&A portion of uh, the, uh, the press conference, a lot of the reporters asked Powell about if he was worried that rising wages would be a problem for inflation and wage inflation, or would rising food prices be a problem creating inflation? And all these questions are, are being asked by people who don't understand inflation, and they're being asked of a Fed chairman who doesn't understand inflation because inflation is not caused by wages going up. Inflation is not caused by food prices going up. It's inflation that causes wages to rise. It's inflation that causes food prices to rise. That's what's going on. Now, food prices could rise for other reasons other than inflation. But if food prices rise, absent inflation, the price of something else is going to go down. So rising prices won't cause inflation. It's inflation that causes all prices to rise. And that's what's happening. But you can't overlook what's going on. These 10% per year increase in wages for UPS, what is this telling you? This is telling you that shipping costs are going to go way up. Not just the wage component, but a lot of other factors. And if UPS is giving its drivers these big hikes. FedEx is going to do the same thing. Uh, the cost of shipping everything is going to go way up. Well, what are these companies going to do? <clears throat> if companies are having to pay higher prices to ship their products, well, what are they going to do? They're going to pass that on to their customers. All this stuff is going to be passed on. And of course, the individual consumer, when they finally get their products, they're going to pay another shipping cost, right, to get it to themselves. So there are tremendous inflation pressures that are building. You can see it, right? You can see the impact inflation is having on wages, on other costs. And the Fed is oblivious. Yes, Powell is saying we still see inflation as a threat. But at the same time, he's promising to cut rates next year in the face of that threat saying that we don't want to be optimistic. In fact, somebody asked him, you know, if, you know, he's optimistic and, and Powell said, well, I wouldn't want to say I'm optimistic. Let's just say I see a pathway, meaning getting to 2% inflation. Well, I mean, he's obviously optimistic if he's forecasting rate cuts next year. And then he's admitting that the Fed's going to start cutting rates long before. He said long before. 
we get to 2%. Not just before 2%. He said long before we get to 2%, we're going to start cutting rates. Why? Why don't you wait till we get 2%? In fact, he should wait for under 2% to really make sure that we get down there. Because if he just wants to assume that 2.5% is going to become 2%, and so he just starts cutting interest rates you know, on the come because he just believes that the 2.5% inflation is going to go down to 2 And what if all of a sudden it goes the other way, right? What if the fire is starting to you know, go out and then he throws gasoline on it and it ignites all over again? It makes no sense for a Fed chairman who really is concerned about inflation to be talking about cutting rates next year. What Powell should be saying is there are no rate cuts anywhere in sight. Maybe we're going to stop hiking at five and a half, but rates are going to have to be at five and a half indefinitely. After all, this is where rates were, you know, 20 years ago, 25, 30 years ago. This was normal. A 5%, five and a quarter, five and a half percent Fed funds rate is not low. Historically, if you go back ever since we've been off the gold standard, but certainly if you go back to the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, the rate we have right now is not high. It's kind of average to low. So why would Powell be promising a return to the very artificially low interest rates that caused all this inflation in the first place? The reason inflation broke out to the highest level since the 1970s is because we kept interest rates so low for so long. Why would Powell be talking about returning to those very policies that created the problem that the Fed is now struggling with? Because Powell cannot be honest with the markets. Because if Powell actually told the markets the truth that high interest rates are here to stay, the markets would crash. There's no doubt in my mind that that's what would happen. And the reason the markets haven't crashed is because Powell continues to suggest, not only suggest, to say, to reassure the markets that it doesn't matter whether we hike rates again in September, because by next year we're cutting rates. So don't worry. This is all temporary. The pain is going to go away. We've got relief coming. Well, the pain's not going to go away. The pain is actually going to get worse. Now, I wanted to talk about some of the other data points that came out during the week, because on Thursday, we got some strong economic data that actually sent the price of gold uh, tumbling uh, about 27 bucks, although it recovered about half those gains uh, the following uh, day on Friday. But the GDP numbers came out uh, for Q2. This is the initial estimate. And I was surprised by this number. The consensus was for up 1.5%. Uh, and that was um, a decline from the 2% from uh, the first quarter. And instead, we got 2.4%, which is a big number. I mean, I mean, not big in you know absolute terms, but relative to expectations. In fact, the consensus forecast was for a rise of between 0.3% and 2.2. So we came out above the upper end and the personal consumption expenditures, uh, that was only a, a tad hotter than expected. They were looking at 1.5, which was a big decline from the 4.2 from Q1, uh, but we got 1.6. But that 
really spooked the markets. That also caused a massive sell-off in the bond market that day. So bonds got clobbered. It also caused a big rally in, in, in the dollar. Uh, the stock market initially shrugged it off. I was kind of surprised early in the day that Dow was up better than 100 points, uh, despite the, you know, the, the, the bloodshed in the bond market and what was going on. But by the end of the day, the Dow had surrendered those gains. I think it was down uh, a little over uh, 200 points uh, on the day. That's the day that we broke that 13-day uh, winning streak. We got the trade deficit again, a snore. Nobody talks about it. This is the trade deficit in goods. It wasn't quite as horrific as the consensus forecast of $91.8 billion, but it was $87.8 billion, which was a huge number. And the reason that we got this was because imports dropped, actually. The imports were down 1.4%, uh, maybe because the American consumer is pretty much tapped out uh, and has a lot. You know, They've already you know, depleted their savings. And so imports were down a bit. Exports were also up slightly 0.2. And that's why the trade deficit narrowed a bit in goods. But it's still horrific. And again, this is merchandise, 87.8 billion. The merchandise trade deficit that caused, I think, was the one that was the straw that broke the camel's back that caused the 1987 stock market crash, or was one of the main causes, was a $17 billion deficit. So... 17 billion was such a scary number. And now the market doesn't even care about $88 billion. So these are horrific deficits that are going to be a big deal uh, very soon. Again, it doesn't matter until it matters. But we got you know more uh, negative economic news. We got the Chicago Fed national activity. These numbers continue to be very weak. Last month, it was uh, in, in May, rather, it was minus 0.15. That was revised to minus 0.28, so a worse number. The forecast for June was positive 0.3. It came out as negative 0.32. So according to Chicago Fed, basically, uh, it looks like recession is coming or here. Uh, the PMI came out for June uh, this one was actually above 50, so slight growth at 52, but manufacturing is still in the red at just 49. So that's in contraction in manufacturing. The service sector uh, was uh, slightly you know, positive at 52. Durable goods, that also came out on Thursday. That was another stronger number that helped cause the, the carnage in the bond market and the sell-off in gold because the number was positive 4.7. And that was versus a consensus of up 0.5. So a big number. And X transportation it was supposed to be down 0.1. It came out at up 0.6. So this was a number that was stronger than expected um, and contributed to, uh, to what happened in the market. But again, if you look at the, the chart, the bond market looks horrific. I mean, we had a little bit of a rally on Friday and the yield on the 10-year just back below 4%, 3.97. But the five-year is almost 4.2. Uh, and even the 30-year is 4.03. But if you look at these charts, um, it looks to me like we're, you know, we're going to be breaking down in the bond market. Uh, and how much longer the stock market 
can ignore the breakdown of the bond market. You know, there's a lot of people that have been looking for a big rally in the bond market. A lot of people have been saying, buy treasuries, buy treasuries, lock in these yields. Uh, and I've been warning people not to buy treasuries. In fact, again, you know, I was on Fox Business on Wednesday. That was the day before I left Connecticut uh, for Arizona. I went into the studio and I, I talked, I was with Liz Clayman. If you haven't seen that, it's up on my, my YouTube channel. But again, the guy that was on there with me was recommending treasuries. A lot of people, you know, uh, the Bond King, right? Jeff Gunlock has been, I've been watching him uh, on CNBC, touting treasuries, buy, buy these bonds, lock in these yields. He's been saying this. A lot of people have been recommending bonds because they think this is a great, you're locking in these high yields. They're not high. These yields are still low, especially when you contrast them to the rate of inflation. But I think we're getting ready to disappoint a lot of people who have been trying to pick the bottom in the bond market and who have been buying the 10-year or longer, thinking they're you know, going to make a gain. They're about to get hit with some unexpected losses. And not only is this going to be a problem for the people who buy the, buy the bonds, it's going to be a big problem for the banks because the banks are about to get another leg down in their portfolios because their bond portfolios, their mortgage portfolios are about to take another big hit when we get another leg down in, in the bond market. And that's going to be a big problem. It's a big problem for the Fed, too, because now the Fed has to bail these uh, banks out by doing quantitative easing. You know, during the, the Q&A, Powell actually got a question. Somebody said, you know, you're going to start cutting rates right by next year. Is it possible that you're still going to be doing quantitative tightening, right? Because the Fed is still committed to shrinking its balance sheet, yet they just said they're going to start cutting rates next year. And so this reporter said, well, are you going to be cutting rates while you're still doing quantitative tightening? And Powell's response was, yeah, that could be, right? Because he, he doesn't want to acknowledge that they're going to go back to quantitative easing next year, but that's exactly what he's going to do. In fact, I actually think that the Fed's going to go back to QE before it starts cutting rates. I think it's going to be forced to go back to QE to bail out the banks based on the next leg down in the bond market and the mortgage-backed security market. But also, it's going to have to bail out the U.S. government because more and more of this debt is maturing and the Fed is having to go into the bond market and finance it at current rates. There are no buyers there. The world doesn't want to loan us all this money. And so the Fed is not just the lender of last resort, it's the lender of only resort. And the only way the Fed can lend to the US government is by going back to quantitative easing. So I would expect that to happen even before the Fed starts hiking rates. Anyway, I want to finish up the podcast, though. I want to talk about, you know, some new information that came out today about the Bidens, because I think it's particularly relevant uh, because this is also the 13-month anniversary is not really the right word for it because you know anniversary you know connotes something good right this is this is a this is a bad thing that happened 13 months ago it was the 30th of June uh, last year in 2022 that the regulators in Puerto Rico shut down my bank and held a press conference and brought the IRS uh, you know the J5 in there. 
uh, to talk about how they suspected the bank had been laundering money and evaded taxes, even though they knew that the bank didn't do that. Yes, they may have suspected the bank of those things before they started the investigation back in January of 2020. But by the time they finished their extensive investigation two years later, they knew that all of those suspicions were unwarranted because they didn't find any evidence of money laundering or tax evasion. I mean, not only did they not find evidence that the bank helped people launder money or evade taxes, they couldn't even find any evidence that it happened. You know, thousands of accounts, they couldn't come up with one example of, of a customer that actually did something wrong. You know, at that press conference, you know, they made a big deal. They said, oh, you know, there's hundreds of investigations of customers of this bank. Yeah, well, so far as I know, none of them have been charged with anything. There was an, a report in January that these two guys were arrested in, in, um, in, in England. And it was somehow in connection with my bank, although they never actually came out and said they had accounts with my bank. So I have no idea. But nothing, I've heard nothing about that. They've never released their names. And as far as I know, they've never been charged with anything. They got arrested, but there was never a follow-up article that they were ever charged with anything. So as far as I know, nothing has happened. Not only did nothing happen in my bank, but nothing has happened as a result of any of these uh, investigations. But the reason I want to talk about this is because the, the news story that came out today, and I read about this you know, on, on Zero Hedge, and I, you know, I researched it too, is that the banks where the Bidens had their accounts, remember they had all these shell companies, all these LLCs that they had set up. And these, these you know, LLCs had accounts at major banks, right? JP Morgan, Bank of America, uh, you know, Chase, all the big banks, right? I mean, they didn't have an account with my bank. Of course, that's the irony. There's no way they could have opened one. Our compliance was too strict. I mean, first of all, we didn't take Americans, so we wouldn't have taken the Bidens. But we also didn't take politically exposed people. They're called PEPs, P-E-P. -E That's the anachronism in, uh, in the banking world. Why didn't my bank take PEPs? Because we thought they were too risky. And clearly, you know, the Bidens were, were doing a lot of shady things. We didn't want any politicians to have accounts at our bank because we didn't trust them, right? We know these guys break the law, so we didn't want them doing it at our bank. But, you know, these big banks, you know, they, they got no problem with taking politicians. So they took the Bidens and all these accounts. They filed over the course of I'm not sure how many years, 170 suspicious activity reports. Those are called SARS on the Bidens. That means the bank saw something suspicious in the transaction and notified the government. Hey, look, we're worried about this transaction in this account. The government did nothing. Now you can see, okay, maybe one or two SARS, no big deal. 170 on the same group of accounts and nothing? I mean, what is the point of requiring banks to file these suspicious activity reports if you don't even look into them? They must have looked into them. Somebody at the Justice Department, somebody somewhere must have looked into these SARS and saw that they were linked to these Biden-related accounts, and so they did nothing. Here's the irony. None of these big banks, despite filing all of these SARS, none of these banks closed any of the Biden's accounts. They, they just let them keep on banking. Even though they were doing all this suspicious stuff, they kept the account open. 
They kept processing all these suspicious transactions. All they did is tell the government that they're doing it. And they figured, okay, they, we covered our butts, but they continued to bank these LLCs. Now contrast that to what my bank would have done. We would have shut the account down. We wouldn't have just continued to bank them. We got a lot of SARS that we filed, but we always show, shut the account down. We didn't want to take a chance. So if we saw something suspicious, and just because it's suspicious, that doesn't mean the customer actually did anything wrong, right? It just looks like maybe they did something wrong. And so you tell the government, but my bank was so cautious. We didn't want to take a chance. See, these big banks don't have as much to worry about. But we depended at my bank on our correspondent banking relationships. And so we needed to make sure we were extra clean. That's why, you know, we didn't take critically exposed people. There was about 13 different types of people that we wouldn't even take accounts from because they were too high risk. And then if there was any suspicious activity, not only did we file the SAR, we closed the account. We said, you know what? You can't do any more business with us. We don't want to take a chance. That's how strict my bank was. You know, the irony, Westpac in Australia, we had a correspondent banking relationship with Westpac. Westpac in Australia was fined like $2 billion for millions of anti-money laundering violations that were made by its correspondent banks. So they were holding Westpac responsible for these AML violations from correspondent banks like Europe Pacific Bank. But here's the, 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 the important point. None of those multi-million violations were related to my bank. Even though we were a correspondent customer of uh, Westpac and we were submitting all sorts of wires that they were processing, none of our wires were the problem. It was all these other banks that had suspicious wires. They're the reason that Westpac got in trouble. They're the reason that Westpac uh, got fined. But 60 Minutes Australia didn't look at any of those banks and accused those banks of helping Australians launder their money or evade taxes. They accused the one bank that had a relationship with Westpac that was squeaky clean. We did nothing wrong. And again, here is the irony. 60 Minutes... Uh, and these reporters said that, hey, you got 100, Europe Pacific had like 100 Australian customers. And they said that those Australian customers were using my bank so they could ev evade taxes, right? Even though not a single one of them has been found to have used their account to evade taxes, they said that they were using my bank to evade their taxes. Why? Because they said, well, you know, Peter Schiff's bank, wasn't subject to the CRS reporting requirements. Well, neither were any of these big banks that the Bidens were doing business with because no banks in the United States are subject to CRS, not just Puerto Rican banks, all banks. Every single American bank was operating under the same rules as my bank in Puerto Rico. Here's the truth. If those Puerto Rican, if those Australian customers really wanted to hide their money from the tax man in Australia. They would have sent their money to JP Morgan. They would have sent it to Bank of America. They would have sent it to Wells Fargo or Citibank because those banks wouldn't have closed their accounts for suspicious trades, just like they didn't close the Biden's accounts. They just would have sent the SAR, but they would have allowed them to conduct their business. My bank 
was the most difficult bank. If your goal was laundering money or evading taxes, the last place that you would have sent my your money if you were an Australian was to my bank because my bank had to have compliance that was far stricter than these other banks. And by the way, there are U.S. states like Delaware, like Nevada that have bank secrecy. If you really want to keep your money secret from the tax man, that's where you go. You go to a Nevada, you go to Delaware. There, there are a few states that really have bank secrecy. There's no bank secrecy at all in Puerto Rico. It's an open book, right? The only thing that we had was that we weren't uh, reporting through CRS because there was no way to do it because no American bank has the ability to do that because the U.S. government didn't sign on to, to that uh, protocol. So we, we had no choice. I mean, if we uh, were able to comply with CRS, we would have done it. In fact, we had a brokerage subsidiary in the British Virgin Islands and BVI was subject to uh, CRS. And so all of our brokerage accounts, we filed. So any Australians who had brokerage accounts with my with my bank, we, we, we reported those accounts to the Australian government through our BVI subsidiary because there was a mechanism in place that allowed us to do that. So what's happening just today just highlights how much stronger my bank's compliance was uh, than all these other banks. Yet my bank got shut down. And again, you know, if you haven't watched the uh, press conference, I, I it's up on my website. Again, they had that press conference on uh, 13 months ago today. The sole purpose of that press conference was to pretend that my bank was being shut down for money laundering and tax evasion, even though it was actually being shut down for not having enough capital. According to the commissioner of OSIF, my bank was critically insolvent, except a couple of weeks later, she signed off on the liquidation plan that certified that my bank was not only not critically insolvent, we had more almost $3 million more than was owed to the customers. And in fact, all of the customers' deposits were kept in cash. The bank had no debt and no loans, yet it was put into receivership anyway. And the problem is here we are 13 months later and not a single nickel has been returned to a single customer. None of my bank customers have gotten their money. I could have sent back every customer 100% of their money 13 months ago had Puerto Rican regulators let me do it, but they didn't. They didn't want me to do that. They wanted to make a big deal about helping the IRS pretend my bank was shut down for money laundering and tax evasion. And so they held that press conference. They let those guys come and talk about tax evasion and, and money laundering to the point where the Portuguese government actually froze the bank's account at Nova Bank and, and, and caused a whole chain of events to happen. But here we are today, 13 months later, and I still have no idea when anybody is going to get their money. You know, who knows? I mean, you know, someday, I hope it doesn't go an entire second year and all that money is unnecessarily tied up. But I could have sent it all back. I wanted to send it all back. Of course, there was no reason because I had a buyer. I had a company who was willing to buy that bank, put in more capital, would have been seamless for all the customers. That deal was on track until it, they pulled the rug out from under it with no advance notice 13 months ago, you know, to do this press conference so the IRS could pretend uh, that their Operation Atlantis, which was a complete embarrassing failure, was actually a success. Now, there was a great article, I'm mentioning it again, it was written about this, 
uh, in the Daily Wire. You know, I've read that article now a few more times. The, 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 the writer did an excellent job. Again, I didn't write this article. I mean, th he did his own independent research. Uh, this is Pulitzer surprise material. It's unfortunate that the mainstream media is completely, completely ignoring. I'm surprised nobody has picked up on this. Uh, uh, and so, you know, we got to bring it to the attention. So if you haven't read this article, it's up there on the Internet. I've tweeted it out. Share it with your friends. Send it to congressmen. I mean, I'm trying to use whatever connections I have to get an investigation going. But it really exposes the, the degree of corruption, the obstruction of justice, the abuse of power that goes all the way to the top of the IRS. And again, you know, the government wasted, the U.S. government wasted two years, spent all kinds of money looking for evidence that my bank was helping people launder money and evade taxes and found nothing. At the same time, they were handed a pile of evidence on a silver platter that the Bidens were actually evading taxes and laundering money, and they did nothing. <laughs> so here I am, innocent, was punished. I lost my entire bank, and absolutely nothing has happened to Joe Biden or Hunter Biden or anybody in the Biden clan despite the fact that there's overwhelming evidence of guilt. Anyway, that's it for today. Stick around uh, for my next podcast, which is probably uh, not going to be for a week again because of all these travels. I'll be back in Connecticut. But then the following week, I should be back in Puerto Rico, and hopefully we'll be doing uh, podcasts on a more regular basis. So uh, bye for now.